Good morning, everybody. Um, you guys can actually stay standing. Uh, uh, this is the, the time in the service where we're going to read uh, the passage of scripture for today, and we stand in reverence for God's word. Um, we will be reading John 4, verse 19 to 42. And um, after we read it, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond. Thanks be to God. So John 4, verse 19 to 42. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left, left her water jar, and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, Do, do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed, this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come before you and enter into your presence um, and that you are here to meet with us. And uh, we just pray that you would give us a greater glimpse of your, of your glory and your presence even just this morning. Um, and we pray that you would uh, bless Michael um, as he shares, shares your word um, and that we would just um, come away with a greater sense of who you are and um, of your presence with us. In your name, amen. Thanks, Katie. Welcome, everybody, to New King Church. Um, my name is Michael Lee. I'm one of the pastors here, and we have a lot to celebrate um, today because Pastor Ben and Tiffany had their fifth baby. Yeah, we can celebrate. Woohoo! Little, little uh, Millie was born on Friday afternoon, and, uh, and then they were home by Saturday at 2. A little crazy. And uh, so the miracle of modern medicine and uh, the stamina of Tiffany. It's amazing to watch her do that. So we have a lot to celebrate, um, but I get the privilege of preaching to you uh, today. This is the final sermon in our series made for more. And if you don't have a Bible, 
Robin in the back um, has Bibles, so please raise your hand. Robin's happy to bring you one. It's our gift to you if you want to keep it. If you don't have a Bible, you can keep it. Um, we really believe here in the Bible as being God's word and um, accurate and faithful to teach you and uh, strengthen you for life with Jesus. Um, and it has everything you need to live the life that God has called you to. So, um, so feel free, if you don't have a Bible, you know, if you've been here a while, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one. We order and make sure we have enough Bibles um, for everybody. So feel free to take one if you don't have one. And we read out of the English Standard Version. That's just the, the version we read from. Um, but again, if you need a Bible, just let Robin know. So we're in this series in the book of John called Made for More. And this is the final sermon in this series. And we'll be, uh, we'll be having a special guest next Sunday, a special speaker next Sunday, coming up from southern Vermont to, to preach to us. Um, and then we'll be starting a, a new series um, right after that as we um, go up to Easter Sunday. And this series, for this sermon, uh, in this series, I titled this final sermon, Eat Like Jesus. Okay, so we're not going to be actually talking about Jesus' eating habits, whether he was a vegetarian or a, uh, a meditarian or whatever you want to <laughs> call it. We're not going to talk about that today, but we are, we are going to um, talk about Jesus and in these specific words. I titled it Eat Like Jesus because of these specific words that Katie read. My food is to, the, to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. We're going to talk about today the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples and to us as his church to make disciples of all nations. And it's known in the Bible, if you've read the Bible, and, or if you've been a Christian for a while, there's this phrase that the church uses. It's called the Great Commission. The Great Commission. And it comes from um, this passage in Matthew 28 that, that I'll read later. But it's called the Great Commission. So today's sermon is going to be talking about the Great Commission and what we can learn about the Great Commission from this interaction Jesus has with the woman at the well. Pastor Ben started that, uh, this story last week, and I'll be finishing the rest of the story this week. What lessons can we glean about the Great Commission from Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well? In the summer of 2007, about little, little, almost 12 years ago, Shannon and I, my wife Shannon and I, if you haven't met her, she's the better half of, of me, and she runs our children's ministry here. Um, we moved to Seattle, Washington, from Arizona. I'm originally from Arizona, where I was born and raised. And we moved to Seattle, Washington, to, to start our, our new lives together. We had been newly married for just a year. And uh, we really prayed and asked God where he would want us to start our new lives and have some kids and, um, and um, see what adventure God would want to bring us to. So, so he brought us to Seattle, Washington. And, and we, um, I had never lived outside of Arizona at this time. Um, I was the young age of 25 when we moved, and, um, and so we moved to Seattle, and we lived in this part of Seattle that was really diverse. It was the south part of Seattle, super diverse, it called, called the Rainier Valley, um, and it had one of my favorite Muslim restaurants I'd ever, I'd ever been to. It was um, run by a Cambodian family, Cambodian Muslim family, and so I would often go there to eat, and one evening, I was there um, to meet a student, an international student from Libya, um, Muslim background student from Libya. And while we were eating, we noticed a gentleman um, sitting by, them, by himself um, at another table, and we invited him to come eat with us. And in, in, in um, many cultures, when you see somebody eating by themselves, you, it would be rude not to invite them to sit with you and eat. So we invited him over to sit with us. And so he came and joined us for dinner. We were having a nice dinner, and I asked him what he did. And the gentleman told me that he was the head of the largest Muslims association in Washington. And um, so I was kind of like, oh, wow, that's a really interesting job. Like, I didn't know that 
there was somebody that ran Muslim associations, <laughs> and so he asked me what I did, and I told him that I was an accountant, which I, which I am, and that's I, I still am today, and, um, but I also, I also told him that I was really passionate about talking about Jesus with Muslims and Christians. I just kind of came up with that at the spot, because I was like, I got to take advantage of this opportunity. Like, I, I may never meet this guy again. So I told him I was really passionate about talking about Jesus with Muslims and Christians. So, so to my surprise, he really liked that answer, um, and he invited me to his mosque to share with his leadership about Jesus. So I said, oh, yeah, I, that, that's cool. I do that every week. <laughs> so I'll put you in my calendar. Um, so he got up to leave, and of course I'm like, what did I just get myself into? Um, and the Libyan student, you know, Libyan student, he, can, he barely knows English, and he's sitting there, and he's listening to this conversation. And he looks at me, this guy leaves, and he looks at me, he's like, are you a holy man? That's literally what he said. That's like the words he knew. Are you a holy man? And I said, no, I am not a holy man, but I do like talking about Jesus with people. The Libyan student said, he said to me these words, he said, I've always wanted to learn about Jesus. Would you teach me everything you know about him? So for months after that interaction, the student would come over to my place every Friday evening with a handful of other Libyan students that he convinced to come over to study about Jesus. So today we're going to look at this great task of making disciples, right? This task that Jesus has given his disciples and he gave us as a church to take seriously. Um, this task is known as the Great Commission, as I talked about, and it comes from Matthew 28, 18. I'll read it for you, okay? Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to end of the age. This is, was one of Jesus' final commands that he gave to his disciples before he left earth. So it's obviously really important, really important task that he's given us to go and make disciples. And in this story that Jesus has with the woman at the well, this interaction we're going to learn six things about making disciples. I love dumbing things down to a specific number of points. So six things. I want you to hopefully remember one of these things. I got six things to teach you. I believe Jesus is trying to teach you about making disciples from this passage. There are six things. Making disciples can happen and most likely will happen at the most inconvenient times of your life. It will happen at the most inconvenient times. Making disciples can happen and will happen with people you do not expect to make disciples of. Making disciples is about making true worshipers. Making disciples starts with your testimony. Making disciples is an act of obedience. And making disciples is all about Jesus. Let me pray for our time. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to teach these people what you want to teach them through me. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would be with me, and I pray you would prepare everyone's hearts here. I ask that you would fill them with your spirit to want to go out and make disciples and to take this task seriously in their lives. We pray this for this time. In your name we pray, amen. All right, lesson one. Making disciples can happen at the most inconvenient times. This story that Jesus has, this interaction she, he has with the Samaritan woman, I don't want you to forget that it happens when he is really, really tired. He's just traveled, he's just walked on foot through the desert for six hours, okay? Chapter 4, verse 1, I'll read this for you. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. 
So, when he, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour means noon. It was midday at noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So Jesus had spent, had woken up with his disciples, spent most likely six hours from sunup to noon, walking from uh, Judea to Galilee, and he has to cross through this region called Samaria, and he gets to this well, this famous well to the Jewish people that um, Jacob had built. And at that well, Jesus is tired, and his disciples realize that, and they want to go get some food for him. So they go into town, into the Samaritan town, while Jesus waits at this well. Now, Jesus is tired, right? And so he could have literally ignored this woman that come, came to this well. He could have said, hey, look, I, can I have some water? Um, and instead, he takes this opportunity as he's tired and weary from travel, to have a deeper conversation than just about water with this woman at the well. We, we all have these moments, right, in our everyday lives. We have these moments where we have every justifiable excuse that's good and right and no one would judge you for it to ignore situations where God could use us. We have these moments in our everyday lives. It's, it's so inconvenient sometimes, these moments, where we run across somebody and we know, man, if I just stop and have this conversation right now, I probably could impact this person. But it's really inconvenient. <laughs> we all have those moments. Think about, think about those times you, you drive by and you see that car, that that woman or man stranded by the side of the road with their car, and they, they, you know that's probably a tire issue or something you can help with. And it's just, but it's just so inconvenient because you're late for an appointment. You're late for a lunch with a friend. Uh, you're going to be late to work. Um, you're, you're, you're on your way home, and, and what your wife has food on the table, right? And you, got, you can't miss dinner with your family. It's so inconvenient. Or you're in line, and you're, just ru- you're trying to rush out, and you're waiting in line, and there's people in front of you and behind you. And, of course, all of us are on our phones looking at what's on our phones in line instead of looking up. And there's that person that you could be helping out. Um, maybe, you're, maybe it's a single mom with their kids at the checkout counter. You could be helping out. There's all, we, have, we all know these moments. We all know them, and they're so inconvenient for us. What if we intentionally created the space and time in our lives so that we can stop and engage and help in these moments? What if we actually were intentional with our schedules so that these moments weren't so inconvenient? These Libyan students that I, I told you about, they would get on a bus at like 10 o'clock at night from the University of Washington, and it would, it would take them an hour to get to my house. And so they would arrive at my house at about 10, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night on a Friday night. And they would stay until 1 or 2 in the morning wanting to st- learn about Jesus. And I'm sitting there going, gosh, it's so late. I've just worked a long week, 60, 70 hours you know, at, my, at my CFO job and my accounting job. Isn't this me time? This is me time. It's Friday night. It's me time. Or this is me and Shannon time. Or this is me and Shannon and Aiden time. We had our little, little baby by this time, Aiden, our firstborn. So inconvenient for you guys to show up at my house at 10 o'clock at night. And then the buses don't run at 2 a.m., so i got to get in a car and bring you back home. It's just so inconvenient. Right? And so if I, had looked at, if I had looked at it that way, if I had looked at it and shielded and protected my time, from these guys, they would never know about Jesus. They would have never known all the things they wanted to learn about who is crazy enough to spend that that many hours with these guys. Who's crazy enough to do that? Who who who's going to give them that time? God's chose me to give them that time. 
It was just so inconvenient. What if we didn't look at those opportunities as inconvenient? What if God wants to use you for a time like that? Do you want to miss out? Would you want to miss out on that opportunity? Or would you want to be involved in making an impact in some students from a distant land that I'd never been to and never met people like them? Oftentimes we make times inconvenient when they really don't have to be. We make situations inconvenient when they really don't have to be. So making disciples can happen and most likely will happen at the most inconvenient times because that's how we often see God operate in the Bible. Point number two, making disciples can happen with people that you do not expect, that you do not expect or sometimes you do not want to make disciples of. You don't want to. You didn't make it. You didn't, you didn't choose it to happen. I don't want you to miss the significance here, right? The significance of Jesus, a Jewish man, being with a single Samaritan woman is really important. The Samaritans were looked down upon by the Jewish people. They were known as half-breeds to them, mixed-race people. They weren't pure-blooded Jews, because the Samaritan people came from the intermarriage of Jewish people and non-Jewish people from Samaria. So the Samaritan people, as a people, um, were half-breeds and were looked down upon. And today, there's just about under 1,000 Samaritans alive today. The Samaritans are actually still alive today. There's just under 1,000 left uh, in the Middle East. There was a Jewish proverb um, that was said about the Samaritan people. This is the proverb. Um, that was said back during this time. A piece of bread given from a Samaritan is more unclean than a swine's flesh. That's how, that's how the disciples would have viewed the Samaritan people. The disciples would have looked at this Samaritan woman and this town that they go to buy food from, and they went, ooh, we really getting food from the Samaritans for our Jesus? That's how they would have viewed the Samaritan people. The Samaritans also worshipped in a different mountain. They didn't worship in Jerusalem. And, this, and we learned this um, not only if you study the Samarit- you know, what the Samaritans believe, but we learned this from the Samaritan woman herself in verse 19. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Okay? So, The Samaritan woman um, lets us know and reminds Jesus, hey, we have this disagreement about where to worship. We have this little disagreement. You say we need to, we all should worship in Jerusalem. And um, we, our fathers, my fathers, my grandfathers, we all worshiped on Mount Gerizim, which is the name of the mountain that, that she worshiped on. And that's where true worship is. Jesus doesn't take her bait Jesus doesn't get into this argument about defending Judaism and the Old Testament practices and whether she was right or he was right. He doesn't care either about this racial hatred that the Jews have for the Samaritan women and this for the Samaritans. He doesn't care about it. He doesn't care about her worship practices. He doesn't make this woman list her beliefs before they have this conversation or before he starts engaging her. He doesn't make her define whether or not she's been to the synagogue or the temple recently. Instead, he begins to start the conversation, and he goes right to the point. He goes right to the point with her. But again, he he begins to engage the Samaritan woman, this woman that was of a different religion to him, of a different faith from him, of a different belief system from him, he begins to engage her, even though his disciples come back surprised that he is. Do we have Samaritans in our day like that as a church? Do we have people, whole people groups that we look at as a church, as Christians, that we treat like other, that we look down upon, 
that we have a, a strongly held racial or political or cultural view against? Just replace the word Samaritan with another group of people in your mind. Replace them. Is there, is there a group like that for you or for us? I told you about the story of meeting this gentleman at the restaurant, right? This gentleman who ran this association, this Muslim association. So I, I went to the following week to meet him at the mosque with his, um, with his leadership of this mosque. And I proposed that evening, I, I, I prayed about what God would want me to ask. And I proposed that evening that... Um, we, that he um, allow all of his, all the Muslims in his community to come over to our church one evening and that we would talk about Jesus together. So as many of, as of their people and as many of our Christians in our church would come together and we make the whole night about Jesus. They loved that idea. And so one Saturday evening, they brought 150 Muslims to our church with uh, our church of about 100 people, it was, it was overwhelming. <laughs> and it was a beautiful evening. It was really beautiful. It, the whole night was about Jesus. What we thought about him, what we believed about him. And what, the most disappointing part of that night wasn't the Muslims that came. It wasn't the Christians that came. It was all the hate mail I got. And phone calls I got from pastors in the area who heard about the event, who said, literally, why would you let terrorists into your church? That's what they wrote me. If you decide to make disciples, if you decide to take this seriously in your life, it's going to look really weird to people, including Christians. It's going to look really weird to people, including the people in this room if you take this seriously, because God will decide to use you in the lives of people that it doesn't make sense, and it doesn't make sense to us in the church who God wants to reach. It just doesn't make sense. So point number one, making disciples is going to happen at the most inconvenient time. Point number two, making disciples is going to happen with people you do not expect. And point number three, making disciples is about making true worshipers. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming, neither when on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is worship, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus wants to make true worshipers for, his, for God, his Father, right? Jesus wants to make true worshiper. Notice how Jesus doesn't try to correct the woman, like I said earlier. He doesn't try to correct the woman about which mountain is right to worship on. He jumps straight to the point. There's going to be a time very soon, very soon, when it won't matter what mountain we worship on. Jesus is saying to this woman, it won't matter. That's not the point. Because the Father, my Father, will be worshipped in spirit and truth. I love this line. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is looking for people. God is looking for people. He's seeking people to worship him. God wants people to worship him. He deeply cares about that. Do you ever think about why God made us at all? Like, why did God even make us in the first place? What was the point? Right? If, if God, the infinite God, who's lived for eternity past to eternity present and into eternity future, 
is completely satisfied with himself, why would he make us, us like human beings that are broken and, and imperfect and fallen apart, why would he make us knowing that we would do what we have done to him? Why would he do that? Have you ever thought about that? He's done it. He did it so that people would worship him. He did it so that there would be people surrounding him, worshiping him. He did it so that he could have a relationship with a creation that would actually recognize him for who he really is. He wants true worshipers. There's a story in Acts 10. I'm going to read it to you quickly. There's a, a great story in Acts 10. of a man named Cornelius, a soldier, a Roman soldier. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial for, before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. Cornelius is this Roman soldier who's not Jewish. He's just this guy who has noticed, who has noticed that there's a God to worship probably because of his surroundings amongst the Jewish people, and he decides to worship this God, and he does what he can. He, he doesn't know anything about Judaism. He just decides that he's going to give generously, and he's going to sacrifice to God, and he's going to be a devout man. That's, that's his position. He says he's heard about this God. I'm going to come and worship him, and what does God say to him? Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial to me. That the word literally means it, sm it smells so good to me. That's what memorial is. It's ascended up. I can smell your worship to me. And I'm going to honor that. I'm going to honor you, Cornelius, by introducing you to Jesus through Peter. God is seeking men and women across the world to worship him. And he's going to find any way possible to reach them. He's going to find the way possible. What's amazing about this story is when you read through the rest of chapter 10 in Acts, Peter at the same time is on the roof, on this rooftop, and he has a vision of all these unclean animals on a blanket. He has this vision as he's meditating on this rooftop. And Peter tells, and, and God says, eat the food in this vision. And Peter says, no, they're unclean. They're not, they're not, it's not food that you've allowed Jews to eat. And God says, no, eat the food, eat this food. And Peter says, no. And finally, Peter obeys, and God says, what I have made clean, do not call unclean. What God is telling Peter is all of these, all of these racial and racist views you have of people inside your heart that aren't Jewish, all these things, all these beliefs about being unclean, they're gone. Take them away, because I want people from all over the world to worship me. And I've made a way through Jesus, this Jesus you followed, to worship me. So I'm going to go after people whether you want to be a part of it or not. That's, that's the invitation he's giving us, right? That's the invitation he gives all of us is there are people in our lives all around us and there are going to be people that we hate in our hearts that God wants to use us to reach. He wants to use us. And by God's grace, he gave Peter a vision and maybe by God's grace, he'll give you a vision of those beliefs inside you that prevent you from reaching people, from talking to people about him. But that's what God wants to do with you and with us. Because God wants true worshipers to worship him. God wants true worshipers to worship him. So point number four, making disciples starts with your testimony. Making disciples starts with your testimony. We learn in this story that this Samaritan woman who has literally just met Jesus at the well, 
right? She's just met him at the well, just gave him, you know, talked about this water. She starts making disciples for Jesus with her own testimony. That's all she has. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So they went out of town and were coming to him. In verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. This Samaritan woman was not trained in Judaism. She wasn't anything special. She didn't go through a special class at church. She didn't learn an evangelism method. She didn't memorize whole parts of the Bible. She literally just met Jesus. She literally just met him. And then she ran to town to tell everybody what just happened. That was her testimony. That's called a testimony, right? A testimony is the impact Jesus has had in my life. God has had in my life. And what's great about a testimony is that it's your own testimony, so no one can refute it. It can't be right or wrong. No one can refute your testimony. It's yours. It's yours. Now, somebody could not believe you. That's their choice. But no one can tell you that your testimony, your experience with Jesus didn't happen. No one can tell you that because a testimony is yours. It's yours. A testimony is God's story of himself in your life, and it's the most powerful tool you have. It's the most powerful tool you have to share about Jesus. If you read the whole book of Acts, the whole book of Acts is just testimony after testimony after testimony. That's all it is. It's just testimony of people's lives being changed by Jesus when they meet him. That's how Peter reaches people. That's how Paul reaches people. It's just their testimony about how Jesus had an impact in their lives. And then they share it with other people. And other people want that to happen to them. That's what you have. That's what we all have. If you've met Jesus, you have everything you need to share about him with somebody else. You don't need a... You don't need a Memorize anything more. You don't need anything else to empower you. You have exactly what you need to share. Do you know your own testimony? Do you remember the time Jesus changed your life? Do you remember that? Can you think back to that? If you don't remember, I want to encourage you to take some time and remind yourself of that. We forget. We forget Often, as we walk in this journey with Jesus, we forget the original impact he's had in our lives and the continued impact he has. We just forget, and we get numb, and we get dull, and we get apathetic about Jesus. So sit back and rem remind yourself. Write it down. Remind yourself so you don't forget. Remind yourself every morning when you wake up, what did he do for you? What has he done for you? That's the most powerful story you'll ever have to share. For many of us, it was a specific time and place. You'll, you'll have a time and place that you met Jesus. He came to you so clearly, and he broke through into your life, right? And for some of us, it was a gradual series of events from growing up. It was a gradual series of events where God intervened in your life, where God transformed your life or turned you around in your life. Regardless, if you have a testimony to share, it's the most powerful witnessing tool you have. It's the most powerful one, and it's the only one you really need ultimately, as we see in this story from the woman at the well. So making disciples can happen at the most inconvenient times. Making disciples can happen with people you do not expect. Making disciples is about making true worshipers. Making disciples starts with your testimony Number five, making disciples is an act of obedience. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that, that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, 
I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to him, my food is to do, to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is such a funny interaction, right? The disciples are astonished that Jesus, for one, is talking with a woman by himself, which was very much not something you did as a Jewish man, alone, talking with an unmarried woman. And the disciples are also astonished, obviously, that he's talking with a a Samaritan, somebody who is no better than a pig in their minds. And they're also concerned that Jesus hasn't had anything to eat, right? They're like, Jesus, you were hungry. We've just traveled for six hours. We went all the way to town to get food, and they're concerned. Jesus' response, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And the disciples completely miss the point. They completely miss the point. The disciples are so focused on this exchange that Jesus is having with this woman and the fact that he hasn't eaten that they miss the point. What's funny is the disciples went into town where all the, where all the Samaritans, where all the people are already, and they come back with just themselves. They don't come back with anybody to meet Jesus. The disciples go into town already where all the people are, and they could say, we have this Jesus, this person Jesus with us. We'd love you to come meet with him. And it's the, they instead, they come back with just food. While Jesus is at this well with one woman and sends her back into town to get everybody. That's what's amazing to me. It's just amazing, the irony of this whole story. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples about disciple-making, and they miss the whole point. They miss the whole point. So he uses a Samaritan woman to teach them the, to teach them the whole lesson. I didn't send you into town to get food. I sent you into town to get the people. That was the best food you could have gotten me were all those people that needed me. Making disciples is about obedience to accomplish the work God has laid out for us as a church and as Jesus' disciples. It's not a nice-to-have. If you're devoted to Jesus, it's not a nice-to-have. It's nice if I start making disciples. It's something that I'll get to eventually. It's actually just a regular part of following Jesus. It's a regular part of following Jesus. But sadly, and admittedly, even for myself, it's not a regular part of following Jesus for many of us or for most of us. But you know what's great is we can start today. We can start today. I'm hoping that from today, this sermon would encourage you to go out and start making disciples in your everyday lives. And we can leave today knowing that Jesus has empowered us already to do that by his spirit. And that's the last point. That's the last point. Making disciples is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. In this story, the Samaritan woman was clearly all about making disciples for Jesus. It was clearly all about Jesus. Verse 27, just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to meet him. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You see how all of these people in this town, they came out because of the woman's testimony, but then they actually believed because they met Jesus face to face, and they heard from him directly. This is how Jesus likes to operate. This is how Jesus likes to operate. 
He's going to use your testimony to draw people to himself. That's how Jesus likes to operate. He's going to use your testimony to draw people to himself. Some of these students, as we were, as I was teaching them, as my, Shannon and I were teaching them about Jesus, they would, they would go home from that evening, and the following week, they would have visions of a person in a white robe visit them in their dreams. And then they would come back and go, I just had this dream of this person in a white robe come visit me. What, what, who is it? And I was like, I've never had it happen to me. <laughs> like, I don't know what to tell you. It amazing. It was amazing. Like, Jesus really was after these guys. He was after them. And he wants to draw people to himself. He didn't want it to be about me or about Shannon or about anybody else. He wanted it to be about him, about him. Now, this, this might seem like an obvious statement, right? Of course it's about making disciples about Jesus. If that, that should just be so obvious, right? What, what, what are we here for? What are we, who are we worshiping? But unfortunately, unfortunately, it's not a, the assumption or the case with most churches or most Christians. The reality is, we're either being made disciples of something or something of someone else, or we are making disciples for something or someone else. Most of the time, most of the time, it's actually not all about Jesus most of the time. Think about this question. Think about this for yourself. Are the people and things that surround me or influence me making disciples making disciples of you for Jesus right are they making you a disciple of Jesus or of somebody else think of all the things you let into your life is it making you a disciple of Jesus or of something else or someone else is it making you a disciple of the conservative movement is it making you a disciple of the social justice movement is it making you a disciple of a particular person running for president? Is it making you a disciple of a worldview that doesn't line up with Scripture? Think about those things in your life. What has more influence? Is it the Bible? Is it Jesus, the Holy Spirit in you, pointing you to Jesus? Or is it everything else pointing you to something else or someone else? Or think about the influence you're having in other people's lives. Think about the influence you're having in other people's lives. Are you helping people find and follow Jesus? Are you making disciples of Jesus or of yourself? I hope and pray that none of you are trying to become a disciple of Pastor Ben or Pastor Michael. That you're trying to form yourself like us. I hope that if any way, if anything, we don't get in the way, that we're pointing you to this Jesus that we find beautiful, and we're inviting you to follow us as we follow him, as we follow him. I'm so thankful that Jesus hasn't left us in our own power to accomplish this. I'm going to promise you something. Pastor Ben and me, we're going to fail you miserably. We're going to fail you if you make your faith about New King Church or about us. We're going to fail you miserably, unfortunately, because we're broken men. We're broken. But there's one person that won't fail you, and that's Jesus. He'll never fail you. And he gave us the power to accomplish this work here on earth. Acts 1.6, this is the final words of Jesus before he goes into heaven. Acts 1.6, so when they had come together, the disciples, they asked them, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, remember that the disciples are thinking Jesus was going to come to restore Israel, the kingdom of Israel for them. So that was their, their, their expectation. Hey, you've just triumphed over death, now triumph for our people. 
destroy everybody, make the Jewish people great again. Make the Jewish people great again. That's what they're thinking. Jesus had another plan. Jesus had a completely another plan. He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed for his own, by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Those early disciples go to Jerusalem, and they receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and they go out to change the world. We wouldn't be here today as a church if they didn't obey and go get, that Holy, go get the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't be here today if they didn't obey. That's amazing. The power of the Holy Spirit to point people to Jesus. That's the one job the Holy Spirit has is to point you to Jesus. He wants to point you to Jesus. What impact, think about the impact this church could have if we as a church, if all of us took seriously the command to make disciples, what, what impact could we have in this city, in this state, in this country, in this world? These guys changed the world. They changed the world. What impact could we have by the power of the Spirit if we took seriously the task of making disciples? Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that we get the opportunity to come and worship you and learn from you, but also that we get the opportunity to go out and tell people about you and tell them the story of the impact you've had in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, so much for this. And we pray, and I pray that as we reflect on these words, Lord. There are specific people you have in mind. There are specific people you have in mind in our lives that you want us to reach out to, that you want us to share with. And we're scared. We're afraid. We're timid. We're worried about what people will think. We're worried about being labeled something. We're more worried about that and we just need you to intervene, Lord. We need your power, your spirit to give us the courage, the boldness, the love, the compassion to go out and make disciples for you, God. We thank you, Lord, that for many of us, somebody out there listened to you and shared their testimony with us. And they brought us and they showed us who you really are. We thank you for that, and we pray that we could do the same. Use everyone in this church, Lord, to take seriously this task of making disciples for you, Jesus. Amen.